The book of Acts, I gave you an introduction last week, uh, basically gave you an overview uh, of the, the book uh, using a general outline in, a, in Acts chapter uh, 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 1 verse 8, gave you an outline, and, and uh, if you uh, um, didn't hear that message or missed that message, uh, feel free to go online. Uh, yeah, my, my prayer is that uh, through this uh, series you'll be able to... Uh, hear those messages online, and, and if, if technology holds up for us, they'll be available online. Uh, this morning, uh, I begin uh, message two out of part one, becoming living instruments, becoming living instruments of Jesus and what that looks like. Um, you know, last week I ended uh, uh, my message by asking the question, what would my church be like if every member was just like me? I've had lots of you make comments about that. It's a great question. Uh, FYI, it's not an original question. I've heard that question myself. It just came up in, in, in my mind as I was writing. And, and, and the thought is, uh, if everybody attended as often as you do, if everybody shared the gospel as often as you do, if everybody worshiped like you worship, if everybody gave like you gave, if everybody acted like you act and said what you said, what kind of church would North Point be? You know, I think some of you all, uh, that struck a chord in you because I think at times we fail to remember how significant of a role we play in God's church, every one of us, students, you included. You just don't see it. You don't recognize it. I know as a kid I didn't recognize it. I can remember coming to church and just slumping down in the pew and thinking, you know, what's this about, and at times ready to get out. Even though I had Christ in my heart, I didn't take serious what God had called me to. And what God was wanting to do in and through me. And the Bible says that everyone is important. We all have significant gifts and abilities that, that have to be deployed if we're going to be who we're, God's called us to be. And, and whether or not you're using your gifts, whether or not you're using your abilities, or worse, when you're engaging God's mission for your life half-heartedly, we are never going to be effective as a church. We are never going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish as a church. That's why I'm excited about the book of Acts. Acts, to me, the book of Acts has it all. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. It's immediately followed up after the Gospels for a purpose. Uh, in the book of Acts, there is supernatural intervention. There are amazing miracles. There is powerful preaching. There's breathtaking escapes and harrowing journeys that we read. There's action and mystery and an adventure. Uh, there's life and death decisions. There are some, even some courtroom dramas that unfold in the book of Acts. And there's several thrilling rescues that God makes. I mean, the book of Acts will grab your attention. Uh, it will trigger your imagination as you think back to the time of those first apostles and what they were uh, called to do and how God worked in and through them. And, and at times, it will even tug at your emotions. It'll speak to you. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible book. And as we, as we journey through this book, here's what I want you to be cautious of. I don't want you to miss the story behind all the stories. Because there's a story behind all the stories in the book of Acts that's unfolding. And you're going to see that story. As a matter of fact, in the, one, one commentator said this, as much, as much as Acts could be called the story of the early church, it could also be titled the miracle of changed lives. See, that's really what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a miracle of transformed, changed lives. Now, it's a relatively long book, and as I said before, 
uh, uh, last week in my message. Uh, there's going to be times like Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, where we'll slow down and we'll journey through sections uh, very methodically. And there'll be other chapters, for example, chapter 7, which is uh, Stephen's preaching and his story. We'll use just a couple of those verses. So here's what I want to challenge you with. I want to challenge you to continue to read with me through the book of Acts. Read. If I'm in Acts chapter 1, read Acts chapter 1. If I'm coming to the end of Acts chapter 1, start reading Acts chapter 2 so that you can familiarize yourself with the story that's unfolding. And what will happen is this. At the end of this series, you will know the book of Acts like you've never known it before. The story of God working through his people in that first church will begin to trigger some things in your own heart. And it will affect you and it will forever change you. So here we are, Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to read down through verse 14. And I will say to you this morning, in honor of our great and glorious God, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Here's what it says. Luke writes, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, is it, not, it is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you is in heaven, and he will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount, of Olive, or from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that through the teaching of your word, you would open our hearts and our minds to what you specifically want to say to us. We know, God, there is a very specific truth that comes from your word, and sometimes your truth speaks and hits us in different ways, but there is one truth. Help us to embrace that truth this morning for our lives and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. So Jesus here, the very front, I want you to know, Jesus came to accomplish some very, very important things. He came so that sinners might be forgiven, so that sinners might be set free from their sin and that they might be reunited with the Creator. So on one hand, we would say that the work of Jesus is finished. 
the work of Jesus is finished. What do I mean by that? Well, the redemption work is done. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is finished. It's been completed. When, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the debt was paid. Your sin debt was paid. Sin was covered, the Scripture says. The wrath was removed, and Satan was, was mortally afflicted. I mean, the, thi- the whole dynamic of our entire world changed when Jesus said it was finished. How does that happen? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 tells us, it's not on the screen behind me, but this is what it says, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, all those goats and bulls and cows and everything that was slaughtered in the past for all the sins, all the, sacri- the, 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 the uh, sacrifices that were brought into the temple for the sins of the people would never be needed again. Jesus became the once for all sacrifice. And it says, the scripture actually says here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Yet, Jesus, when he sat down, you need to know that his work was not complete. The redemption work was complete. We know that for sure because his life was, his life was taken up to the Father. But Matthew chapter 16 tells us, what does Jesus say? He says, I'm going to build my church. God's at work through Christ to build his church. And he actually said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And the key word for understanding the relevance of the book of Acts is found right here in this first, ver- this first verse. I want you to underline the word began. Look at what it says. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Began. You see, Jesus' Jesus's ministry of proclaiming or uh, the proclamation of his truth is not finished. It's still in progress. It's our job. And so you might add to the phrase I said a second ago, the work of Jesus Christ is finished, but at the same time, it's in progress. His work or finished work on the cross was just the beginning process. And here in Acts 1, we read that Christ's work of redemption is completed and the church's work begins. You know, during Jesus' earthly ministry, um, think about this. The preaching that went on took place through him. For the most part, there's a couple of times we read the apostles were preaching, they came back, and some good things happened. But for the most part, the preaching of the gospel was coming through Jesus Christ. The apostles weren't preaching. It was Jesus that was preaching. But in Acts, that responsibility is passed on to the apostles. And uh, get this, it's passed on to us as God's church today. That's why Jesus' words in Acts 1, verse 8 that we read last week, we're going to look at again next week. And the ultimate fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 2, verses uh, uh, 1 through 4, that's why that's so important, this coming of the Spirit. You see, the disciples, remember where the disciples were? The disciples were hiding out. They were hiding out. They were in fear. They were behind locked doors. They weren't preaching when Jesus died, nor were they preaching when Jesus came up out of the grave. And Luke is giving us some very key details to how the disciples became these incredible preachers and what transpired in their life. Jesus appeared to them. And what this tells us is that the apostles, after the resurrection, there was something that they had to understand. They lacked understanding. See, they were preaching a message, but that message didn't come until Jesus is appearing to them for those 40 days. Something very significant happened during that time. That was part of the reason for Jesus actually coming back and spending that time with those apostles. And here in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, there are actually six specific things that Jesus gave them that I want to bring to your attention. And I don't have time to cover all six this morning. I'm only going to be able to cover three. 
we see that there was a correct and clear understanding of the message. There was verification that, that he was really alive, that, that he really did come out of the, the grave, and that he was triumphant over death. He gave them more instruction on the kingdom of God. He gave them power from on high. He gave them the mission to engage, and ultimately he gave them motivation to finish the race. That's what we find here in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Let's cover the first one. Look at this first one. The first thing that they needed was a correct and clear understanding of the message. Look back at, verse, uh, look at verses 1 and 2. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You might circle the word there, the first account. What is that referring to? I talked about it a little bit last week. It's referring to Luke's gospel. The first account. What is the first account? It's the gospel. It's Jesus coming. It deals with Jesus' early life and his early ministry. But Jesus didn't just, just teach during those, those three years he was here. All those hillside lessons that he gave them, all those times walking uh, from city to city, the sermons that he would preach to his disciples, those nights around the campfire that he had with his disciples, all that teaching, that wasn't the only time that Jesus taught. Luke is showing us something here because remember, Jesus was the preacher before Jesus came up out of the grave, but the disciples were not doing anything. Jesus was teaching. He was teaching. Look at what it says here. Notice he was, how, what he was going about doing. It says that he was by doing and by teaching. Jesus was revealing the truth that these guys would need to carry on his work. They had to be taught. You see, if you think about our life, if we're going to carry the message of Jesus Christ into our world, we need to understand the message. And the beauty of the Bible is this. What Jesus gave to the disciples then has been written down for us and that which we need to be proclaimers of the gospel today in our world. And Paul said, I'm going to, I want to show you a couple of things that Paul said. Paul said uh, to the church at Ephesus, this is what he said in Ephesians chapter 1, 18 through the first part of verse 9. He said this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's an incredible statement. Paul is saying here, this is important. This is at the heart of who you are. It's the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Here's what he said to the church at Philippi. He said this, and, I, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellence in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And then to the church at Colossae, he said this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. What is he asking? Here's what he's asking. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what Paul said to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Colossae. Paul told young Timothy, his little protege, this little young preacher, this is what he said to, to, to young Timothy. He said, be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but accurately handling the word of God. Matter of fact, he told young Timothy to be faithful in teaching the doctrine, the, the right doctrine, to the people that he was leading. And I thought about that, and I thought about what 
Paul was saying to Timothy, to the church at uh, uh, Ephesus, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Colossae, I believe there's a message for us as we stop and we look into 2016 and we look back beyond into 2015 and what God did through us. My question to you this morning is this, are you growing in God's word? Dads, you've been commissioned to help your kids understand God's word. My question, are you growing in God's word? Moms, do you know it? Are you studying it? Is it speaking to your heart? Matter of fact, when you stop and you think about it, the writer of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews gave this extreme uh, scolding to the people that were there because it was so important. Here's what he said. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. In other words, you've been Christians for so long, the word ought to be in your heart to the point that you're becoming teachers. Not a teacher up behind the pulpit. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. A teacher to the people that you do life with, your spouse, your kids, the people that you work with. Is God's word coming out of your life? So you say, well, by this time you ought to be teachers. You have not you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. It's time for you to go back and suck on a bottle as a Christian because you're not growing in the Word. God has called us to grow in His Word. So, so what does all that mean? What does all that mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that it is all about Bible knowledge. Do you realize that knowledge is powerless if we're not going to live it? Knowledge is powerless if we're not going to live it. Parents, if you are not going to emulate and to demonstrate what it means to live God's Word, and I'm not saying being perfect, sometimes that requires us as parents to acknowledge, you know what? I messed up. I'm sorry to a son or to a daughter. I didn't do that right. Sometimes kids need to hear that. But knowledge is not the only thing. That's not the only thing. As a matter of fact, look at what it says here in Acts chapter 1. Luke says here that Jesus began both to what? Not just to teach, but to what? To do. To do. Jesus is the epitome of what it means to live the right life. He did it perfectly. How many of you all know what it means to adorn something? To adorn something. You know what adorn means? give you a good example of this. When a mama has a baby, when a mama has a little baby, and they bring him to the church for the first time, what does that mama do? Decorates that little baby up. I mean, little girls will have hoods on them, okay? Little boys will have bows. No, they don't put boys in boys' hair, bows in boys' hair. But they'll decorate that baby. At Christmas time, at Christmas time, many of you all are masters at decorating your house, adorning your house with things that represent Christmas. Well, I want you to know that, that Paul actually talks about this word adorning and, and the idea of knowledge and what it looks like. I want you to see it's Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It's actually uh, in verse 10, but I'm going to read 7 and 8 because they're important. Here's what Paul says in, in, in Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. In other words, people can't point a finger at you because of the things you're saying. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about you. Now look at verse 10. 
showing all good faith so that they will, here it is, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. You know, this past Wednesday night, we began uh, our discussion in section 6, talking about the doctrine of God, and we looked at what, what necessarily is needed uh, to be a church, and what, how do we know a church is really a church? And, and, and the answer that, that Grudem gave us, and it was a true answer, it comes from God's Word, is that yes, we can know if this church, North Point Baptist Church, is really a true church. A true church is determined by that church that preaches the gospel, the Word of God, and not only preaches the gospel, but where the gospel is heard. Heard. We hear it. And not just that, but where the sacraments are practiced, the, the Lord's Supper and baptism. That's a true church. As a matter of fact, Grudem actually goes on and, and tells us at the end of chapter 44, he, he basically tells, tells us that the church has a threefold purpose, and, and it just, it's real simple. That's why I'm sharing it. There's ministry. There's ministry to God, which is worship, which was what we just did. There's ministry to believers. There's nurture. There's discipling other people around us bringing people to maturity, getting them off of milk and getting into the word, the meat of the word. And then there's the ministry to the world. There's evangelism. There's the, 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 the idea of extending mercy to the world around us. But I want you to know that, that, that none of that is important. Worshiping God, ministering to other believers, evangelizing the world when there's no adorning of God's word in our life. We're not decorating our lives with God's Word. I wonder this morning, how decorated are, is your life, is your marriage with the Word of God? You see, it's, a, it's basically a waste of time to proclaim the salvation message and to live a sinful life. I think that's really the problem with our culture today. There are so many, many people that claim Christ, that claim, I go to this church and I attend this church, and all of a sudden, as soon as we hear them say, I attend this church, we automatically assume they're a Christian. No. A Christian is somebody that is not only in a church, a Christian is somebody that is the church. And what is the church? The church is someone who knows the gospel. The gospel is alive inside of them, and they're living the gospel. The gospel shows up, not perfectly, not like Jesus, but it shows up in all that they do. That's a picture of the church. Have you ever stopped to consider what makes a church powerless? Really, two things. One is this. We can be a church, but if we're ignorant of God's truth and his word, we can't effectively be the church that God's called us to be. That's the first thing. Here's, the, here's another one. Those who know biblical truth and fail to live it. That's what makes a church ineffective. Let's keep reading here. Look at what Jesus, Jesus the scripture Luke says here in, in, in verses 1 and 2. We're only going to make it down to verse 3. It says this, the first account I composed, he says, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. I want you to stop and consider where Jesus' power for ministry came from. Stop and think about that. Look at what it says here. After he had, what? By the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, we're not going to talk about it in full detail this morning, because I don't have time. 
That's, that's my fourth point for next week. But you need to understand something. The Holy Spirit was both the source and the power behind Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry took place because of the Spirit's power, not only upon him, but inside of him. Think about when Jesus was baptized, and I'll touch on this next week. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit, the Scripture actually says the Spirit came down upon Christ, and it was at that moment that his, spirit, that his ministry began. And everything that Jesus did, and all the miracles, and all the teaching, and all the profound sayings, and even going to the cross and dying, that ministry took place because the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the Holy Spirit is my source. It's your source for power that ultimately enables us to take this word, this knowledge, and make it real in our lives, thus making it real in the lives of those people that we touch. Look at what else it says here. It says that, that, it, it, it says that uh, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders. You might underline the word orders. Some of your Bibles actually might read commands or commission. Jesus was giving this commission. This commission, the Spirit was going to come upon these guys. And it was by the Spirit that their lives would be, be different. Remember I said a second ago that these guys uh, were, were chosen for a very specific mission, but they could not engage the mission. Where were they? They were hiding behind doors, behind locked doors. Do you remember when, when, uh, when they got news, some of the guys came back with the news that Jesus had been... I mean, they were doubting that. Thomas said this. He said, I, I'm not going to believe what you guys are saying till I can put my hand in his wounds and see his face. And today we call him who? Doubting Thomas. See, these guys weren't ready. So Jesus came back for 40 days, and those 40 days were crucial in the lives of these apostles. And what God gave to them, God has given to us as a church today. And it says here, to the apostles whom he had chosen. I love that. The guys that he had chosen. So first thing Jesus gave his disciples during his 40-day stay here on earth was a correct and clear understanding of the message made possible by this power known as the Holy Spirit that came upon them. Here's the second thing that they needed. They needed verification that Jesus was alive and actually triumphant over death. They needed that. They had to have that. They not only had to have the proper message, they needed to know that, that Jesus was really out of the grave. I mean, I mean, what would you expect? I mean, why would a guy go to his death for a guy who died on a cross that didn't come back. People be running. You see, most people don't realize it, but this is one of those things that actually help prove who Jesus was. Because not only did those 12 men, the question of maybe John, but most scholars believe that all 11, Judas out of the group, but all 11 of those apostles died as martyrs. And most scholars believe that one or two of them would have recanted at some point along the way. Not only that, but there were 500 gathered around, and many of them lost their life. In the midst of a, a, an incredibly wicked, dark society, in the midst of a Nero burning Rome, their Christianity was, I mean, just busting at the seams because of the spirit that was alive inside of these apostles and in those first believers. So the question is this, what's happened today? 
It's because we're not taking that knowledge, and that knowledge isn't real to us. We're picking and choosing what we want to believe, and we're not taking the whole counsel of God into our hearts. These guys needed verification. It says this in verse 3, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. If you want a great reference to write down next to this, this is a great reference. This is one prob- it, is, it is really one of the only references that we actually have in the New Testament that really gives us appear, uh, uh, evidence of Jesus' appearing. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 5-8. through 8. You might jot that down. Right next to that verse, a great little cross-reference. I want to read it for you. This is what it says. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, Paul writes, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Remember Paul's coming from Saul to Paul, his, 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 his uh, uh, road to transformation when he was blinded. You see, what was the result of all those miraculouses or miraculous appearances? See, the, the apostles basically became absolutely convinced to the point of dying that this really was Jesus. So they needed a correct and clear understanding of the message. They needed verification that Jesus was alive and triumphant over death. And here's the third thing I want to talk about this morning in closing. They needed more instruction about the kingdom of God. Now, it took me some time to really get into this. And I'll be honest with you, I really didn't want to tackle this, but it's here. And the more I looked at it, and the more I peeled back the layers, just the more I thought, gosh, how could I have missed this? How could I have not revealed this to our people? This is, this is so, so significant. Look at verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. It says this, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. You see, the apostles had been slow hard to understand and to believe during Jesus' earthly ministry, particularly there at the end because their life was at stake. And now they needed a crash course in kingdom theology. And Jesus, during this 40-day period, he gave them a crash course class on kingdom theology. Stop and think about what the promises of the Old Testament were really about. I stopped and started looking at some verses. I want to show you. They're not on the screen behind me, but I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Luke. Turn back, Luke chapter 24. Show you a couple of references. Luke chapter 24 Look at verse 25 through 27. Now remember, you'll notice Jesus is alive. These guys aren't preaching yet. Jesus is with these guys for 40 days. He's giving them something. And Luke is letting us in and letting us see what these guys were missing. Look at what it says in verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. I wished, I wished, I wished I had everything that Jesus said after that point. But we don't have it. But we know that Jesus is giving him 
this kingdom theology. Look over at verse 45. At the end of all this, it says right here, Luke lets us in on it before he starts giving us the, 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 the acts, the story of the expansion of the gospel. Look at what it says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the what? The scriptures. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. See, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances were vitally important. There was a source, a power behind Jesus' ministry that he had, that he was passing on to his apostles. Look, look at uh, Acts. I want you to flip to, uh, uh, or look back at uh, Acts chapter 4 and verses 5. Look at what it says there. It says this, gathering them to together, he commanded them, not to, to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, what's the significance of what I'm saying here? First off, in Luke, we know, Luke wrote and said that God opened the apostles' minds to the message, to the knowledge. But they didn't leave out there because in the book of Acts, here that I just read in 4 and 5, Jesus said, hang out here. Something's coming your way. You're going to be baptized. This is a big term that I'm going to, and, and I just want you to know, next week, some of your tradition is going to be rattled a little bit. But it says that he baptized them in the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? What does that feel like? How'd that happen? What transpired in these guys that made all that, to understand that, you need to know that the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus brought was, to, was really, this kingdom that he brought was to reside in our hearts. You remember what Jesus said? One of the first things that Jesus said, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, I think it's on the screen behind me, said this. This was the first message that he said. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's that about? Wasn't a physical kingdom. What he's talking about here is he's talking about the spirit that was upon him and the spirit that he was giving to the disciples is the spirit that comes upon us. That is the gospel come to life inside of us and upon us, which is the kingdom of God. It's Jesus revealed to us. He said there in the very beginning, get ready, something incredible is coming. And it's coming to you, those of you who put your faith and your trust and your hope in me. The kingdom's coming to you, and your life's going to be different. Your life's going to be changed. Now, I want you to see a passage of Scripture. Look at Luke chapter 13. This is the last verse that's not on the screen behind me. But this, is, this is another important verse. It's a great reference verse for you, Luke chapter 13. I'm going to give you a picture. Remember I said to you, before I read this, remember I said to you, the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you look and read through the book of Acts, there are many correlations between the gospel and the kingdom. Jesus is giving us two simple parables to bring to light the gospel alive inside of us. I'm almost through. Stay with me. Look at what it says here. Luke chapter 14. Look down at verse 18. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? 
And Jesus said this, it is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. A little bitty mustard seed. Nothing. Almost invisible in my hand. That seed he takes and he puts it in a garden. In good soil. And it begins to grow. Look at what it says. He threw it into the garden and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. Look at the next little parable. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He said, it's like leaven, with, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. In other words, that, that, that flour that just had water in it, it couldn't do anything. But when the leaven was added, it began to expand. You see, the kingdom of God that Jesus said he was bringing is the very spirit, and I, I can't wait to get to next week, it's the very spirit that, that he possessed that was upon him, that came upon him at his baptism, that he is passing on to his apostles via us today. Us today. And my question to you this morning, as we draw to the conclusion of this morning's message, is this. Do you possess the Spirit of God upon your heart. Has there been a time in your life where you repented of your sins? Because the kingdom of God is repenting. It's turning from your old life, and it's walking toward God. It's pursuing His knowledge. It's allowing His knowledge to come into your heart and change you and make you the dad, the son, the daughter, the mom, the person that God is calling you to be. Is the kingdom upon you? Because there's going to be a love for God's word. There's going to be a love for God's church and God's people. There's going to be a love. And you see it manifested in your life. This past week, this past week, someone called me. And it was an odd conversation for me and this individual. But this individual called me and said to me, with tears on the other end of the line, said, you know what, I'm, I'm hurting, and I've, I've committed. I've committed some great sin. And I had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to go. I had no one to talk to. I felt all alone. And as I was sitting alone and listening to God, God laid you on my heart. And he told me to call you. You know how humbled I was that somebody would, would call me when they had a need? There are people in this community right now that are hurting, that are desperate, that are living in sin. And they are looking for a way out. Do you possess the kingdom of God to the extent that they would call you? That they would care to call you? Is Jesus alive inside of you? Or do you have, in a nice way, Please don't take offenses, but do you have your little circle of Christian friends that you do life with? And nobody else is, can get in. See, that's part of our doing. 
we, we, we can't just be good people. We've got to be honest, transparent people about our sin and our waywardness. And then we've got to walk with God. We've got to confess those moments when, when we're not getting it right. We've got to keep walking with God. That knowledge has to come inside of us. It's got to grow. And, and so, really, the invitation this morning is really threefold. The first one is this. If you're here and you've never come to a place of repenting of your sins and making Jesus Christ Lord of your life, that means the kingdom comes in if you've never done that. The invitation is for you this morning to come and receive Jesus Christ. I long for the day when people would come and fill this altar to pray for receiving salvation, to pray for repentance of sin. Maybe this morning you're here and the Spirit is speaking to your heart and there's some sin that is messed up. It's no longer, your life's no longer adorning the gospel. The gospel's not adorned in you. The message, the kingdom is not being adorned in your life. It's not being adorned in your marriage. It's not there. And maybe this morning God just wants you to come and kneel down and say, God, I, I want some things to change in my life. Or maybe you're that third person. You're that third person, and I, and I gave that illustration. This individual calling me, my question to you this morning, is the kingdom of God alive enough in your life that somebody would come to you and say, God laid you on my heart and told me to come to you? Maybe the question is this. Would you be willing to be that person? Would you be willing to be that person? I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. I ask Matt and worship and praise team to come to the stage and I'm going to give every person here an opportunity to respond to the gospel. I'm going to ask our elders to come to the front. If you are a woman and feel comfortable praying with people, this altar is open for you. Maybe this morning you just want to come and pray for people. I, I believe there's some intercessors in this church. I, I encourage you to come and begin to pray right now. If you're here and you need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to introduce him to you this morning.